does the fact that eventually someone is going to die and end in tragedy, does that somehow negate a happy life with a happy marriage? No, it doesn't, right? Like, that that fact doesn't change anything. And, like, doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy happiness to avoid that future outcome. And that idea that you should is at the heart of the thinking of this society, right? It's like, it's all about the afterlife and some eternal salvation. It's about um, biological imperative that they see, they see it as a holy imperative to procreate that's in the Bible. We gotta make children. There's nothing about mm-hmm. love and nothing about happiness. That's not important to them. Welcome, friends, to episode 198 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss the first five episodes of Bruce Miller's 2017 series, The Handmaid's Tale. So reading the story and watching the first five episodes of this series are different experiences. I, I, I want to get right off the bat your, your reaction to it, but just like, was it as heavy for you as it was for me? Because I feel like every time I've I've watched this show, it's just so heavy uh, in a good way. But if it's not fucking one of the darkest shows on TV, I don't know what is. Yeah, uh, I could totally see that. I was talking to, it was my brother recently, uh, who was saying that he, you know, it's just, he, he can't bring himself to watch it because he just, it's going to be so heavy. And I'm like, I'm like, it is, I can't yeah. tell you it's not, but it is really good though. Um, my, my main takeaways so far are, I can see why they are making some changes. They are trying to create a show that is going to span multiple seasons and I can see them laying the groundwork for that. Um, and some of the ways that they're sort of tweaking uh, our main character, uh, Alfred or June, as she's known in the show. Um, and I, I think it's smartly done. If, if that's your goal, right, is your goal is to make a multi-season show out of a out of a book that, at least at the time in which this was made, only had a single volume, and you were going to basically cover in the first season, I assume, um, you have to lay the groundwork for that and start building out what you want to do. Um, and it seems like that plan was in place. I, I'm, I'm sure they didn't know for sure that they were going to get renewed, but uh, they probably felt like it was a pretty good chance. The show seems well-made to me. Um, I, I think it has a striking look to it, extremely well-acted. I can see why this was uh, in contention for Emmys. Uh, I don't know if it won any or not. I, I, I didn't look into it, but I know that I've heard The Handmaid's Tale talked a lot about when it comes time for award season. And I think for a good reason. There's just a lot of great stuff to, you know, to, t- to talk about here. And it was one of those situations where having read the book right before I watched made it so that a lot of the surprise was gone. Um, because most of what happens in the show is in the book. And then it makes some of the stuff that wasn't in the book stand out a little more. And then um, I also can really pay more attention to little character beats, uh, visual t- flourishes, 
um, the the music and sound, just like everything else that's going on, I can I can sort of appreciate the texture of because I'm not as caught up in the plot because I kind of know what's going to happen for the most part. Yeah. I mean, there's it's pros and cons, right? Like part right. of that, that that can lead to a really rich experience as well. Like um, that's that's how I've been approaching it, too. Like and, and even knowing the story and going to the book was, was yeah. that same kind of way for me when where I could focus more on the ways that she was telling the story rather than necessarily the plot. But yeah, the, I mean, it is it's it's a winding story in a way because the, the location tends to be the same, but it starts to blur together because of yeah. like the way that the narrative is set up, like we talked about uh, last week, the the past and the present are kind of fluid throughout this throughout the narrative. And that does make, remind me something I want to say at the top is like, if you didn't listen to our first episode on the book, you definitely should, because I think there's a lot of overlap that yeah. we're going to we're not going to be able to retread because right. we want to talk about a lot of other stuff. So check that one out. And then also, you know, come back for the show. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, like, you, I agree with most of what you're saying. The performances are amazing. The th one of the things yeah. that really struck me and has stuck with me is how it's just one of the most beautiful shows. It's it's unbelievably shot. Looks great. Um, and I want to give credit where credit's due because, like, there's not just you know in the in the episode intro there we said Bruce Miller's show, but um, he himself has stated that there are other, tons of other people that helped get this made. Uh, and it's definitely not just his sort of brainchild. Uh, first off, we're talking about cinematography, so I want to talk about Reed Murano. Uh, she's an American f cinematographer and director. Murano was the first woman in history to win both the Emmy and Directors Guild Award for directing a drama series in the same year for the pilot episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, wow, for this show. Nice. For this show. So uh, she's also known for cinematography on feature films such as Frozen River, Kill Your Darlings, and The Skeleton Twins. Um, cool. So that's to talk about the look of the show. And the reason I bring her up is because she actually directed the first three episodes of this show as well. Okay. So for this show established what I think was the look and the feel of the show in the first yeah. three episodes. I was going to say, if, you, if she made the first three and directed and, and kind of designed the look, it seems to me like that set the tone and set the, set the sort of template for everything that follows, right? The legwork has been done at that point. And yeah everybody else can kind of follow in that same vein and it's it's striking like i said yeah. i love i have the, a lot like, of specific moments i want to like talk to you about and and kind of break down what 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 someone was going for with the design of it and stuff like that because yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff like that for sure in here we're going to talk general thoughts right now but one more person i want to mention because we'll talk about bruce miller the the showrunner when we get to that section but mm -hmm. right now i want to say that bruce miller uh didn't start from scratch when he was tapped to showrun this by hulu uh, Eileen Chaikin, uh, who's now the showrunner for the Fox series Empire, first developed the project for Showtime. And Bruce Miller said, quote, she deserves a lot of credit for incredible endurance and tenacity for keeping it alive. Her pilot script gave him a great starting point and he grappled with how to tell the story. Quote, her script spread out to different points of view early on. And I don't think she used voiceover. So kind of highlighting the oh, ways that I think he changed yeah. it. But overall, she she was shepherding it for a really long time, and he just picked up the reins to get it made. It seems like. Oh man, that's the age old debate, right? Voiceover, because I was just thinking about how they clearly leaned into that. It's almost a trope when it comes to a great movie adaptation, right? Or a great adaptation of of, of classic material, is you got to get those lines in there. You want to get the the exact words 
and put them in, you want to have an actor deliver the words with all of their skill and talent and so many of them are internal internal thoughts um, in a lot of these books and so you're like well how do i how do i do that the only way that so many people come to is that voiceover um but there is a trade-off because i found myself thinking like what would this have looked like if it didn't have voiceover it would have been a very different adaptation. You would have lost a lot of what makes this feel very um, internal, not just internal, but um, faithful, right? Mm -hmm. Like having a lot of that internal stuff makes it feel faithful. And if you got rid of it, it would be a show that was maybe subtler yeah, and left more unsaid and had, and had to be implied. I think it would be more challenging for audiences yeah. too. Like this, this show already asks a lot of you yeah. as a as an audience member, and to not have um, some some I don't know to to leave it more ambiguous like that and to leave it for interpretation, it would make for something really artful. I think, and I because I I enjoy typically not having voiceover. Right, you would have had you would have been left reading the scene to figure out the meaning. Right, like yeah, it, and you would have left like hanging on emotional beats and. All this stuff that I do enjoy that kind of filmmaking, but ultimately I think the right decision was made. And mm -hmm. part of it comes back to the power of Margaret Atwood's prose and a lot of what goes on internally is it's so difficult to fully convey um, and, it, and it seems so important to the story. So ultimately I think it was the right decision. And, and for me it actually ratchets up a lot of the anxiety because... Uh, and that's something that this show does so well, if, if you're looking for that in a show, is that like at every turn, in a way that I felt like the book maybe didn't. In the book, we saw Offred, or June in this case, as um, suffering from, and we see a little bit of it in the show, but so, some Stockholm Syndrome, some like fighting back in, in, in ways, in her, in her own ways. But in this version, I think in the show, she's much more deliberate about fighting back. And the yeah. monologue, a lot of the voiceover leads to that too, is like, we know exactly where she's at, her frame of mind. And then there, but there will be times that she falters along the way, which was just like the book. And um, ultimately, I think that the, the, it just ratchets up so much tension. Every conversation, every, it feels like every interaction in this, you're like, did she make the right move? Is this going yeah. to negatively affect her? Is somebody going to rat her out like the entire show? In the book, my sense of Offred was that she was a survivor who had a tenacious, desire to live and to possibly see her child again um hope for a chance at escape but wasn't someone who was necessarily going to go out in a blaze of glory kind of kind of thing this version um of the character is that but with this core of what feels like a fighter like a like a real resistance leader kind of being born and that that's where that's what i feel like they're laying some groundwork now i haven't seen anything beyond five episodes so i'm just speculating on the idea of this show going on for five seasons what i would think i would want to do if i was going to do that is take this character and turn her into something down the road um and i i feel like they're pushing that character in that direction i don't know if that's what they end up doing or not but that's my theory at least 
they have these reaction shots and just shots in general of Elizabeth Moss, who gives an, an un- unbelievable performance, by Fantastic. the way, which we should we should talk about. And yeah. she won. You, we should, th- this show, you mentioned Emmys. This show won like every Emmy. It okay. won like everything for a long time. In the first year, I think she won like most outstanding actor in a drama, something like that. Right. And the, these these super intense reaction shots that she'll yeah. get in moments where she's being like beat down or told what to do or something and the person leaves the room or she just straight up get like gives them these like s- this intense stare that is just like you know yeah. that there's a fire there that she's not going to give up and she's not going to just like let it happen and and yeah i mean like some of the elements that i think were there in in the novel are being played up a little more we've already heard about may day yeah. and um in the show through five episodes so you know that was definitely set up in the in the novel as well. That also brings up a, a good point too that Margaret Atwood did have a, a pretty pretty strong presence in the in some of the changes that were happening from her original novel. She she worked closely with the the production to make sure that things kind of held up with her vision. Yeah. So last week I think we talked about her visiting set. Um, I think we, that was in the episode. We talked about how she she came to set and had a cameo, and how it was a really she found it to be like a harrowing experience because of how emotional and and sort of dark the the scene was that they were filming did you did you catch it did i you did catch, catch it and okay, i put good. it on our i put it on our instagram uh okay. and a story that's probably gone now because <laughs> of the way instagram is but um it was yeah she she walks up and slaps uh elizabeth moss um during during one of those scenes and um it was i was like that's uh quite a quite a cameo to have in your show is to slap your your protagonist that's pretty fun yeah, I mean that's it was a massive. I I mean like I had I didn't know what she looked like the first time right. through the show, and then I did after we talked about her last week. I had looked in, into her a little bit, and then I saw her in that episode, and I was like, "Holy shit!" And then come to find out, that was definitely her. Very uh, cool. There's another there's another little um, Easter egg that I'll that I'll share that I'll, you may already know about, but I'll share when it comes later on. That's like episode yeah. three or four. Cool. I feel like I need to underscore how watching this show right now again feels just incredibly timely we talked a lot about this last week but with everything going on in texas right now and this abortion ban and these just insane laws that are that are seemingly getting passed and people are fighting against and it really lent a sense of urgency and realism to everything that was going on and especially all the flashback scenes of life kind of starting to change and all the little hints we're getting of what's to come. Um, it was really scary and it's uh, just, the show feels important and it feels uh, timely and um, I don't know, just it, I'm glad that we're covering it right now. I think this is a, a good moment for me to be watching this um, and hopefully uh, we bring some more people to it. It really does like highlight the fact that as much as people want to be apathetic about some of this stuff we are actively in a fight for people's freedoms every yeah every, with with things like this going on so being involved in local and like federal government and understanding what's going on and voting yeah. accordingly like is really powerful and and like uh speaking out and so the, a show like this just highlights that and yeah I, I really hope even if we can just get one person to check it out and be affected by it i'd be happy with that yeah absolutely um before we get into anything else though i do want to uh, put out the request one more time. We are coming up on our 200th episode in two episodes from now. Somehow it's uh, it's pretty wild. 
Um, and James and I are going to, I think we're going to play some games or something. Um, we, we've got some ideas about how that's going to go down, but we also want to share our favorite episodes. We're going to make ourselves pick, and then we're going to talk about our lives and how both of us have changed over the last four years um, doing this podcast, which is is flown by. And we wanted to know from our listeners, um, if, you, if you're willing to write in to us, when did you start listening, uh, you know, approximately, and how has your life changed since you've been listening? You know, did you start going to school? Did you graduate? Did you start a new job? Did you move? Did you get married? Anything like that. We'd just be curious to know. I, I like to hear about people's, you know, journeys, and um, I think that would be interesting, right, for our listeners. And then if you could also let us know, like, what your favorite episode is, and or if you moment. can't, yeah, if you can't think of a favorite episode, favorite moment would also be awesome. You know, anything that you remember off the top of your head when you think about Ink to Film, uh, share that with us. And then um, we just request that in those emails, keep them fairly short, just a few sentences. That way we can read them on the episode on, on episode 200. Um, send those to inktofilm at gmail.com if you'd like to participate in that. We'd love to hear from you. And um yeah hopefully you check out our 200th episode it should be fun yeah and we're really looking forward to recording that one and thank you all so much for listening for 200 episodes i still can't believe it it just blows my mind that it's been that long yeah i'm i think this is a good time to talk about the filmmaker showrunner in this case bruce miller he is an american television writer and producer best known for eureka 2006 the 100 2014 and the handmaid's tale 2017 for his work on The Handmaid's Tale, Miller won the 2017 Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series, as well as the Golden Globe Award for Best Television Series Drama. It was the first show on a streaming platform to win an Emmy for Outstanding Series. Oh, interesting. So very important and interesting to think about this in terms of like the streaming boom that's that's come about, because this this really was like we had you had like your House of Cards and then you had like a few other shows that were that were starting to build up these big followings. But shows like Handmaid's Tale legitimized streaming services in terms of like award award worthiness and viability in general. Interesting. And now we yeah. have, you know, it's only been four years since this aired. And we're now in, a, in an era where like almost everything you're seeing that's award winning and worth and it's, it's coming out on a streaming service. And whether it's quickly or not, it'll eventually be on a streaming service. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, just historically, it's going to be significant in that way, and like this, this just blew the doors off. Like I said, it won like every Emmy award. What a, what an appropriate show for that. Yeah, definitely. And and another thing that I think is appropriate that I definitely wanted to mention is that there were five directors who directed in these first ten episodes. Four okay. of those being women. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. he did that because I was a little surprised that it was a man doing this um, show running this, but not shocked because you know that's it's Hollywood. <laughs> um, but it seems like he's approaching it the right way and, and um, yeah, choosing a bunch of uh, women directors seems like a smart choice. Yeah, that's why I was really excited to talk about Reed Morano because like her influence on the show is like it, my, it, she easily also probably could have been a showrunner in a sense. Right. Uh, with her with her like, like I said, leg work that she did. And of course, she's working with Bruce Miller, so not to take away too much from him, but they th there's a reason why this story is inherently a woman's story and i think it's mm -hmm. great that it's it's being represented hopefully in in those ways but if you're ready i think we can jump into plot here yeah I i'm ready to talk about these episodes so sounds good yeah okay the first one is called offred a family is pursued by a group of armed men 
The woman is caught and separated from her young daughter and a husband as shots are fired in the distance. Sometime later, the woman is now known as Offred, the handmaid to Commander Fred Waterford. While walking, she and another handmaid, Offglen, pass by a wall on which men have been hanged for crimes such as being gay, working in an abortion clinic, and being a Catholic priest. In a flashback, women are indoctrinated into their new role by Aunt Lydia, and Offred sees her best friend Moira among them. Another woman, Janine, is rude to Aunt Lydia and is shocked with a cattle prod. Later, her right eye is removed as punishment. In the present, Commander Waterford tries to impregnate Offred during the ceremony. The next day, the handmaids are encouraged to beat a man to death for allegedly raping a pregnant handmaid and killing her baby. Offred is the first to participate in the brutal murder and appears to happily do so without any moral com- conflicts or regret. On the way home, Offglen warns Offred that there is an eye in the Waterford house. Offred affirms to herself that her name is June and she intends to survive to find her daughter. So we mentioned the name thing, um, and I just want to get it out here because I, I don't think I said this last week, but the name June is not canonical for Offred. Well, the name June does appear in Margaret Atwood's, in her novel, right. in the source novel. Uh, it's not canonically her, her name necessarily, but some people believe that there are some some ties between the two like you could you could assume that her name is that so so what i saw was that margaret atwood said that people have read into that moment where they're all in the gymnasium whispering to each other and there's a list of names every other name that's listed you find out who that is but you don't find out who the name june is and so people have taken that to mean that our narrator's name is june uh, she says that that was not her intent when she wrote the line, but that people are free to believe that if they want. She's fine with it. And then obviously in the show, they they embrace that. Um, so I just think that's an interesting detail. And, and one of those things where um, in writing it, she clearly wanted the narrator to be nameless. Um, I think that was probably a deliberate choice, right? Um, but in the show, I think it's indicative of a larger change and that they have her name herself at the end of the first episode it's a it's a defiant thing right like the show is a defiance whereas margaret atwoods was a survival like you were saying yeah a little bit it's it's i don't want to pretend like book off glenn is not defiant like you know what i mean because she does a lot of the same stuff um but she just fights in a different way like it, it really just feels like she's fighting to survive in this world they're basically, I mean, overall, they're basically the same character. It's just yeah. a shift in terms of like how the the story is being played out. Like it's yeah. like you could you could see a version of it was just the way Margaret Atwood wanted to tell the story. There's a version of that novel off read that is this defiant. And it is interesting to me as well, because I read that in the 1990 film adaptation, they just randomly chose a name and off name is Kate. Her <laughs> pre Gilead name is Kate. Okay. They just randomly chose one. <laughs> they weren't as weren't as careful about it. I, I'm kind of curious about that adaptation. I'm, I'm assuming if we can find it, we could do it as a as a bonus just to see what what it's like. Yeah, yeah, I'd like the. I mean, like I would like to see the other version of it because right. it is interesting too. Like you're picking up on something that I I'll talk about more in the next episode that we do that'll cover the whole show. But part of me wonders what what just a mini series of this would be like. You know, right. like like just do the book what they have. And do like a six, seven, to maybe ten episode miniseries, 
uh, covering everything they wanted to because it, we are in kind of like the golden age of the miniseries like that. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know if it was as viable in 2017 or if they felt like they needed to have something that would be more like sprawling. Right. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I haven't seen the rest of the season, so I can't, I can't tell you. Um, speaking about this episode, I wanted to highlight the decision to start with the flashback. Start with them in the car trying to flee to Canada. Um, her in the woods with her child and then getting caught. She hears the gunfire. And it's interesting that she seemed convinced that her husband was shot, um, which seems to imply maybe she saw a body. But that would be a slight change from the book where she mentions that she doesn't know for sure. She heard bullets fired, but she doesn't know for sure that he was hit or if they shot in his direction. Um, so I don't know if that is a deliberate change or not. I, I guess it would depend on where the show goes from here. Um, you might know things I don't know. But the the, the decision to to start in this place, I think, is is a pretty good one. Like I see why you want to do it. it. It establishes a familiar look and feel and situation even though we don't know why they're fleeing they're clearly like wearing like regular clothes like doing regular you know appear to just be people like you and me right and then we transition from that into this otherworldly dystopian thing where everybody's wearing colored uniforms and and everything is so strange um grounding us in that moment of like clearly this is this is the moment she was captured um it shows that there was a transition and it leads off that way that I think works for television. I think this this works for viewers who just might be turning on the show and go, hmm, is this something I'm going to want to watch? It, it helps you get into it more than um, necessarily the way the book begins, which is in the gymnasium with the handmaids sort of being indoctrinated. And I think if you were a viewer and you wanted to read it this way, you'd be forgiven in thinking that someone trying to escape to Canada from America, seeing people who are gay, working in abortion clinics, things like that being discriminated against, you could see this as a reaction to the presidential climate right at that time. Right. It was so, it was like, to, to me, when I, when it was coming out, it was so clear to me that it felt like it just was, and it wasn't necessarily by design, but it was just like, yeah. you know, stranger than fiction kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I went, and I wonder when the show started production and everything, because... Yeah, um, it was definitely in, tw it was in 2016. Okay, so it's, it, yeah. yeah, I wonder if that went into the decision to green light it and to have it, like, actually happen was like, uh, hey, if we put this out right now, it's going to make waves. Yeah, I, I will say, like, I read something about Bruce Miller saying that, that it's not necessarily the case. Like, it right. wasn't really, like, that motivated well, by that. Well, it seems that. like there was significant work would have had to have been done in order to get this out in 2017 already, right. I, I would yeah. I would imagine. Well, and we talked about how Eileen Chaikin had been, like, shepherding it for a long yeah. time before he picked up, you know, picked up the show. And the book had been so. around since 85. Um, yeah. There had been a film adaptation. So this is a story that was out there. Um, and it just, uh, I think they recognized, hey, we got to get this thing out because now's the time. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, it continues to be the time to have a show like this. Um, yeah. I mean, good. fortunately for good television, unfortunately for the rest of everything else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk to you specifically about Aunt Lydia and the cattle prod. And then yeah. Anne Dowd, uh, who plays Aunt Lydia, is just terrifying. Like, she is, she's so, oh my gosh, like, that character was maddening in the book, but the presence, the expression, the, it just, just 
sort of pious, righteous, I don't know, self-righteous. I don't even know what it is. Like there's just so much built up into this Aunt Lydia character clearly getting off on her power and just like is brutal. But it seems like she drank the Kool-Aid. Like it seems yeah. like she's in, all the way in. And she's sadistic. Too. Like she enjoys yeah. it. Like it's, mm. and um, she, they, you know, she shows up everywhere. You know what I mean? Like she, she mm-hmm. if there's something terrible that's going to be done to them, like I feel like eight times out of ten, Aunt Lydia is showing up to do it. Um, she's with the eye later on. Like she's she's just there for a lot of these scenes. Um, and I think it's because Aunt Dowd is killing it, and they know it, right? And she's so reprehensible. She they give us this character to hate probably more than any other character. Like you hate this person definitely. And you talked about it last week with uh, in these like fascist reg- regimes and things like this, where they'll ha- they'll pit people who are similar against each other. And in this in this scenario, they have. Aunt Lydia, who yeah. is a woman, just like completely tearing down these other women and and like propping up the patriarchy in ways and, and that like this, you know, that this society is deemed necessary and stuff. It's crazy. Uh, and she, it works so well because of that. Right. Like she's she's terrifying. She's powerful and she's a presence. Uh, she was in Leftovers as well. Right. Oh, and, is uh, that, yeah, you're right. And she's great in Leftovers. Oh, my gosh. I didn't make that connection. Thank yeah. you for, for making that click together for me. Yeah, and she's excellent leftover, so that makes sense. Okay, so Janine losing the eye and how violent and how like absolutely brutal that was. Yeah, that was a change, but um, I think it was a very interesting one. They they had the biblical reference that they made about, you know, taking the eye. Um, and, and, and I like that they're still, it seems to me that they're trying to do what Margaret Atwood did in the sense that they're trying to use real world things still. They're not trying yep. to get too far from reality and plucking eyes out. That's something that's been done before. There's an example later on. And and I have I have read a couple of things where people felt like some of this is maybe going too far. Sure. Um, and then I, I kind of saw the response that Bruce Miller had, which was what you were saying is trying to stay true to what Margaret Atwood did by threading in things that are actually happening and have actually happened to people and showing that realism. And, and it, yeah. it, it's not just, it's not doing it just to be like extreme and sadistic and yeah. fuck people up and everything like that. Like it is, it does feel like they are leaning into it, right? Like they are definitely yeah. trying to highlight the brutality, highlight just the, the viciousness and, um, there's a little more spectacle here. And if you're kind of a someone who really likes the uh, the subtlety that is at the heart of Margaret Atwood's writing, even though the things she's describing are quite extreme and quite um violent and and brutal, she does it with this subtlety and she does it with this this care um and and um a very specific sort of sensibility of what I'm going to show you and what I'm not going to show you, what I'm going to describe and what I'm not going to describe. This show is not, it doesn't align perfectly in that way. It has been shifted into being a little bit more flashy, being a little bit more um, just impactful in its imagery because it is a TV show and it's trying to stand out in our current media landscape. And so I can't blame it for that, but uh, I do recognize it's a difference and I understand why it might lose some people, but I was yeah. personally okay with that. I do think that that's part of um, modernizing it and making it appeal to, because I think that people want 
these things that are so shocking. I, you know, not all people, but some people do uh, because it is it just shocks the system. Yeah. And it's like something engaging. And you want water cooler moments um, and which water cooler moments are now Twitter moments, it seems like. But you know what I mean? Like you want people talking about it later. And the things that people are going to be talking about are some of these kind of scenes. And this is a good segue into the ceremony, because like I cannot tell you the number of people I had conversations with about this show. And in the first episode, having the ceremony take place and how fucked yeah. it is and how dark it is and how it's just like it. There are some people that will watch that and be like, no fucking way. I'm not watching this show. Yeah. People people check out. And it, yeah, you can't can't blame them. Um, the show is full of just like a million different triggers for people. So I get it. Um, but it's one of those interesting cases where it, it's it's a good example of having a show that is dealing with incredibly dark and triggering material, yet is still very important. And I, I wouldn't change in that sense. So, you know what I mean? It's like just because art can be violent and and triggering and deal with really heavy stuff doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. Um, and yeah. so whenever I see people arguing that stuff that can trigger people or, you know, elicit some sort of emotional response, like shouldn't exist, period, um, I bristle. Um, so... It's, I mean, that's a big conversation about like the role of trigger warnings and how we should be conveying them. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, like, I, I'm glad the show exists in the way that it does. Um, at least in this first season, I, I'm, I'm liking it. I think that the way that Margaret Atwood wrote a novel that was unflinching for that time period. Yeah. This show is attempting to do the same kind of thing that will affect this audience currently, the modern audience, in the same kind of ways. Yeah. And we're talking about a show coming out in like a post Game of Thrones world where... Right. You know, I think a lot of things were learned. It was, you know, massive, massive show. Everyone was watching it. It was using gratuitous sex to at, at some points. And like, you know, we've talked about it a lot and like yeah. how how maybe it got eyes on it and maybe it was a good thing because in the long run, it's it's like rich storytelling. And, and that's great to get like pe people into fantasy in ways. But then there's also like another si another side to that coin where it's like, is this is this like gratuitous? Is it, you know, is it? if you feel like it if you feel like it isn't gratuitous are you like a prude or something like so it's 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 in this area where we're in like a post something like that show, world and and i'm a little uncomfortable comparing this show to that though you know like this this show isn't titillating at all in this first episode i wouldn't think like there's no there's no sense of like making this seem sexy like this is just horrifying yeah i guess i should have highlighted the the like rape scenes and torture scenes and things like that that were in game of thrones rather than the sex scenes yeah yeah and uh, yeah anyway i mean I, I think you're right obviously game of thrones is so massive it probably did have an effect on this but this first episode has a really incredible look and it continues to carry through like we talked about before i think it really establishes the appearance of the show but one thing i did notice was this shot they kept doing where offred was sitting in front of this window and the light is streaming in from behind her, and she's sort of just a silhouette. You see the light rays coming off of her, and she, to me, she she looked almost divine, almost like they were evoking like Mary from the Bible, like Jesus's mother, mm. right? Like this holy woman appearance. And there's a there's an interesting sort of dissonance between that idea and the very human character of Alfred and how her humanity is what she's fighting for and her supposed like holy role as a procreation vessel 
is what society is using to subjugate her in the show. Um, so it was fascinating to me to use visual storytelling to evoke that, yet at the same time we're getting the interior thoughts um, of, of, of a person who's struggling in this world. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I think that is a clever way to visually tell the story you're going for. Um, yeah, that works. It's also conflicting too because is is the filmmaker leaning into some of the things that the society is saying about these people? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's this holiness, and is that is there a holiness around this character because of her humanity? Is that is that something to be considered holy yeah. and something to be considered sacred? Whereas like the wrong things are being considered sacred in in situations during this during this story. Yeah, I mean, it's like appearances and. Is that it's it's it, it, are they evoking the way our society views women? Um, what what is the filmmaker trying to say by doing it? Um, and and so that leads me to a larger question I had for you about this because not this is the most dramatic example of this, but frequently they use either the sun or a light or some kind of backlighting behind a character, sort of coming around them and, and sort of highlighting them, giving them a like a portrait or a, um, I don't know, like just like a, a, silhouette. a, rim, a silhouette, a rim of light um, that will sometimes move. Like I, I'm thinking of later when uh, Alfred is kissing Luke, um, it moves when they go to kiss. And we've talked in the past about how that could be like a, you know, just like a fireworks for this moment. But like, I, I just noticed it was a frequent enough uh, choice that I started to to go, what are they trying to say with this? Um, because it, it kept showing up over and over again. And I, is that a tool in the toolbox of a filmmaker? Um, because it would also be like a lens flare sometimes, right? Like you'd see these lens flares. I know certain like people are famous for lens flares. Like what is the purpose of doing a lens flare? What is the purpose of using light to sort of wash out a scene like that? Or is, is it too varied to, to put your finger That's on? That's the thing, right? It's like pretty subjective at that point. But I would say that like typically using extravagant light setups is very cinematic it's something that you're not going to see in something that's that's just sort of lit well and then they shoot the scene with comedies you see this in comedies a well, lot. what's interesting is a lens flare also calls attention to the fact that it's a camera exactly yeah right so uh, it's very in that way cinematic and right. and one you're you're leading me to something i definitely wanted to talk about which was during this this like crazy melee where they like just like yeah. kill this guy there's this there's this slow motion extreme close up of uh, Offred. It's Dutch and it's extreme close up and it's slow motion. And Which, her, by Dutch you mean it's like uh, Dutch angle, kind of sideways or diagonal. Yeah, right. So the axis is off for the horizon, um, and sh her face is overexposed and she's breathing heavily and she's re it's almost like this realization hair. after. It. I remember that I wrote that like I, it was incredible. There was bits of hair flying in the air during I think that moment incredible so. yeah i mean so many things you can do with light like shadowing someone half of someone's face is like a are they to be trusted kind right. of thing having someone overexposed in that way can show an intensity that's like, what i, I was asking show, like, about like is there is there something like it, having someone's face half half in shadow yeah that might imply a certain untrustworthiness or something or a dark side but like what does that mean when someone's like <laughs> almost overly exposed overly exposed or like almost has like a holy light behind them although often it'd be like aunt lydia when she was talking she would have that light behind her is it power maybe it's like this is a powerful character 
Could be, know. yeah, the overexposed that I was talking about when she, when the Dutch shot was happening, that's just intensity to me. That's just saying like, like it's playing up the drama of the yeah. scene, the intensity of the scene. It's off, It's something's off about the shot too because it is over, her cheek is so hot. You can tell mm-hmm. how hot the light was on her face. But yeah, it's not in like a sex scene or like a kissing scene like you were talking about. Yeah. If the light's like traveling, it's like drawing almost, your eye a lot of the time too. It almost is like a cosmic intrusion into the scene. Yeah. And in that sense, having Aunt Lydia be lit like that, it could almost be like she feels the Holy Spirit and that's what's fueling her in this moment. And so we're going to throw that light behind her because she's feeling righteous and like I am and I have God on my side. And then but then you also see that in other scenes where characters are maybe feeling like they're doing the right thing or I don't know. I'd have to track each moment. Right. And try and figure out what they're trying to say. But it's, it's fascinating if you watch this show to pay attention to when characters have this backlit sun coming from behind them because i noticed it was happening a lot and it always seemed to mean something and then the opposite can be said for you know it's episodes that later but think about like the lack of light when she's been trapped in her room for like two weeks or whatever that yeah. is she's peeking out and trying to yeah know. and then so if light is power in that way then and then like that was her in her lowest moment in a w- moment of weakness and like just covered in shadow um yeah, I mean, the show is incredible. The camera movement is motivated. The lighting is motivated. And that's something you you always want in, in a show like this. It's very artistic. And, and at that point, it, it makes it feel like cinema. It makes it feel like a movie. And that's where we're at with, with TV nowadays is that these are films. So these are one hour, f- five one hour films we just watched. Yeah. So to touch on that scene, and I don't know that we really highlighted this when we talked about it in the book, but like having all the handmaids beat Amanda death in sort of a ritualized moment where um, they just say, this guy did this thing. There's no, you know, due process. He's accused. He's convicted and have Adam and they throw him to the wolves. And then the wolves are literally the handmaids here who, who are people who are being told that they can't ever express themselves. And they probably have just a ton of freaking rage built up in them. And they're given an outlet for it. And then they're also expected to perform this action. Um, so it, it is really fascinating because I see real world examples of this clearly, like performative in-group behavior, right? Where you also, also you almost make someone complicit in some sort of um, criminal or, or morally ambiguous behavior. You see it in cults a lot. Um, where one of the early things they'll have you do is something that like maybe breaks the law or is uh, you know a violent act, and that's how you like prove your loyalty. You talk you talk about criminal organizations. Someone has to like kill somebody to prove that they are. It's it's you you become compliant in the behavior of the in group, and by having all these handmaidens beat this man to death, now all of them probably feel like I am I have I have crossed a threshold. I have crossed a line and there's no coming back. Um, so it's like a psychological trick that these kinds of people play to force compliance. Um, so it's really dark. And, and I think um, I noticed that in the book, but I forgot to say it last week. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. we got to touch on it again here. Yeah. And, and one of the other things to mention is that June in this in this scene is also in a rage because she's just learned about Moira because right. uh, Janine tells her that Moira's dead. And right. we, we don't need any other details other than that. And and um, and June just like loses it and, and starts killing this guy. Absolutely. So episode two 
is called Birthday. June and Offglen go food shopping, and they reveal more personal information about themselves to each other. While they are walking, they see St. Paul Catholic Church, their local church, being destroyed by the new regime. Offglen tells June that the regime also bulldozed St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan to try to erase the fact that it ever existed. When June asks how Offglen knows this information, Offglen reveals that she is a part of a resistance movement against the government, but June declines to join, not fully trusting Offglen. Commander Waterford's driver, Nick, tells June that the commander wants to see her alone later that night, which is forbidden, and warns her that Offglen is dangerous. June and the other handmaids witness the birth of Janine slash Off Warren's child, named Angela by the Putnams, but Charlotte by Janine. In flashbacks, June remembers the birth of her daughter, Hannah. At that time, healthy births were already rare, and a deranged woman tried to kidnap baby Hannah from the hospital and was arrested. In the present, June warily goes to the commander's office that night as instructed, but he simply wants to play Scrabble to her relief. The next day, a different woman introduces herself as Offglen. They really stop on these like uh, big cliffhangers, but one of the things I wanted to highlight here is um, because I want to tell stories, and I'm always looking for like just tricks, right? Like what what are people doing? What uh, maybe not, tricks isn't the right word, but like methods when something's done well i want to like make a note of how it's being done and one of the things i noticed in this episode and then continued to pop up and again and again is how well they are connecting what is happening in the different timelines around similar events Mm -hmm. and in this one it's around the birth of this baby right reminds her of the birth of her own baby the um, baby being taken by the wife away from the handmaid who gave birth to the baby and given to the wife in sort of a baby theft moment, which feels so wrong, we immediately get that flashback of a woman trying to steal her baby in the hospital. And I was like, man, that's really clever when, you, when you're, you're taking almost, it's not like a visual thing, um, although you can do that. It's, it's like a, a, it's literally something that's happening in the plot and you're linking it to a flashback and having something similar and related happen in the plot. But it makes sense in the sense that like, that's how we think of things and that's how we have memories. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense for her to be thinking about this in this moment. Um, I can't remember if this was done exactly the same way in the book or not, but um, I, I love the way that they did it in this episode and then they continue to do it in other episodes. Well, they'll find connective tissue and, and, and so what it makes... It makes the flashbacks feel really motivated um, mm-hmm. and, and it's for like specific reasons. And I know this is something that's done all the time, but like something about this show made it click for me and go like, that is a really cool thing to do. And that's something that I'm going to try and pay attention to for when I have flashbacks that I need to write, mm-hmm. try and find a way to motivate it that makes sense and not just have it be random. Um, yeah. yeah. And in that way, it makes it even more internal and even more from june's perspective right because june like that like you know she's literally like you said baby is taken my baby was taken those the way that those connect together feels it feels so much more natural feels so much more like genuine in that way whereas like if we did a random flashback about something unrelated which i'm looking at you like the bad seasons of lost where we're like we're on the island and we're gonna get a weird flashback with that has some relevance but it's really not it's funny because i was thinking about lost because it was famous for doing all these flashbacks and like the good episodes of lost the the flashbacks are very motivated and they feel very tied to what's happening in the present the bad episodes of lost don't and that's one of the key things right so i mean i think that's that's a good that's a good uh place to 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 look and and think about that it has examples of both kinds (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, definitely. So another uh, moment that I believe was inspired by a thing that happens in the book, but then tweaked a little bit was the cookie scene. One of the wives says to the other, like, oh, let her have a cookie. Serena Joy is there, right? And she says, you know, uh, you know, basically she allows it. She takes the one cookie, hands it to her. And um, Alfred is asked, do you want a cookie? And she says, you know, yes, very meekly. You know, that would be that would be I think what she says, like, I would love that. And she's given this cookie and she bites it. And she has this look of like, I've never tasted anything so good. And um, almost seems to be like for Klimt, like just taken with emotion. And then she walks away and I was like, okay, that's, you know, that's interesting. I, I think that's kind of similar to how it went down in the, in the book. But then we get her going to the bathroom and she spits out the cookie and doesn't eat the rest of it. And she looks in the mirror, I think it was, or maybe just the camera looks at her. And we see this smile on her face that I felt like was one of the first moments where I, I, I mean, I've had a little bit of it, but I was like, this is almost a different character. And that smile told told me that she was faking that meekness. And that smile showed me like sort of a calculation was going on. Like I'm going to pretend to be so taken with this cookie, but then I'm going to spit it out because symbolically I'm not going to accept this, you know, little gift that was given to me. I'm going to spit it out. And that, um, that little act of defiance uh, shows me this is a slightly different character um, because I don't think book off did that. They did it in the same way, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's the, the kind of the opposite of what you were talking about before. They're, they do things to try to indoctrinate you and you can decide to do them or not. Right. And so in the case of beating that guy, she was just so overcome with emotion and, and everything that was going on that she, she played into it. And then in this scenario, they're like, yeah, have a cookie. You know, you're, you're, you know, it's like almost like a gold star. They're like, you're yep. doing the right things within our system. So keep it up. And she's like, no. Well, and you guys. it's so patronizing. That wife says, look how well behaved she is. You know, like she's this dog or something. You know what I mean? Like literally a trained pet. Um, and, uh, you know, so maddening. And then, oh my gosh, the wives. And they're like, they're, they're, this happened in the book, but like something about seeing them gathered around and the one woman laying on the ground and doing the breathing and them <laughs> yeah. all help. Like, oh, my God, the, it's such a farce. And I love that she kind of like laughs at it. She like has this look again that yeah. um, is so perfect. And you know, what's interesting to me, too, is like Serena has like catches her with these looks. And yeah. Serena's like, I know that this is ridiculous, isn't it? It feels like she does know that this is fucking crazy, right? Like it yeah. does look like that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm it, so... I, I was going to wait until next episode to talk about um, Yvonne uh, Strahovski as Serena Joy, because um, I, I do want to talk about her performance. Um, but since you, you're, you're mentioning her here, I think it's time. Um, I find her to be incredible. I mean, with the exception mm-hmm. of perhaps Elizabeth Moss um, and with a shout out to Ann Dowd, um, her performance is really interesting one to me. And mm-hmm. um, she is so mysterious. She seems to have a lot of emotion like swirling beneath the surface of her eyes but but it's a mysterious thing like you don't know what she's thinking and then and yet she is so she can be so intimidating and um in a different way than Anne Dowd who is like clearly this like villainous like reprehensible person Serena Joy like you can't get a beat on like should you feel kind of bad for her 
should you just out and out hate her? Like, I don't know. And yet she can be just so awful to Uffred. And then specifically next episode, there's a moment where she... Um, comes down to the ground and screams at her screams at her on the ground yeah. and i was like i had to i had to stop and be like we have to talk about this moment because it was so good like it was amazing i mean like emoting is like of course like those are going to be a lot of the dramatic moments that when people are like you know yelling and, and something but like it's hard to pull it off and and not have it seem i don't know off but this right. was right on it felt so powerful and terrifying and emotional. I don't know. I just I was captivated by by her performance, and you know, her and Elizabeth Moss together are just killing it in these scenes. Totally agree. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. That scene was, and that scene sets up her being trapped in that room for such a yeah. long time too. And you're like, well, like, and, and that's why it's so interesting to see how June goes about picking her battles because some of the time it's calculated, some of the time you kind of feel like she has some Stockholm syndrome going on, and then some of the times it's just straight defiance. Yeah. Um, and so like it's really interesting to see like if she's playing her cards correctly all the time especially with characters like Serena and Nick and the commander mm. um, a lot the, like it's always I don't know you're you're I'm always on edge yeah. that's what I'm trying to say that it's always anxiety ridden episode watching for me speaking of the commander we got to mention going to his uh, his office and playing Scrabble um, how strange this moment is and I genuinely laughed out loud when he says uh he says something like I, you must find this so strange and she just like looks at him and gives him this little look and then she goes i guess it's a little strange <laughs> and I just, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah i guess it's a little strange i think that's like the the biggest understatement ever so funny um and it's in a, in a show that doesn't have a lot of humor i i liked that i had a genuine laugh out loud moment <laughs> I kept feeling like this time around that the commander is so because of the system around him, just propping him up to do whatever he wants. He seems like a child to me. Oh, man. Like a so, lot of the time. I, I was like regretting things I said last week about him because I talked about him. You know, he's obviously terrible in the book, but like. Right. Margaret Atwood, I felt like did a lot of work to show his humanity. And I think there's some of that work being done here, but. He just seems worse in the show. Like, I don't know. He just, he's, he is so, and, and it makes me think that that is the character because ultimately the character is terrible. Like he's a terrible person, but they're really highlighting his connections to sort of the overall system in a way that was only hinted at in the book. Um, he does seem to be important, um, truly in the, in the, you know, the entire country, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, he seems kind of pathetic and childish. I agree. He he doesn't understand really the moment, um, but yet also he is so privileged in this society. He's he can get away with whatever he wants and he knows it, and mm. it really highlights that right. As he's like, yeah, and here the rules are different, but just because I want them to be. So uh, this is something that I would definitely want to ask you about. The end of this episode is basically that, and then she kind of feels like she has power going forward. There's like, and so she's don't walking you forget out. about me starts playing. The song's playing. That's what that's the, one of the main things I want to ask you about. The song's playing. She walks out through the gate to see Off Glen is a different Off Glen, and then she says, and her, fuck. The, her, and she's like, "Fuck yeah!" <laughs> yeah. And so I I wanted to ask you like how you felt because we've talked before about like having popular songs in shows and movies sometimes can can uh feel a little easy it can yeah. feel like an easy thing to do but i think having different versions of these songs 
as the endings of these episodes and they're pop songs that wouldn't probably even be allowed in right in this society at this point a lot of them are singing about like yeah love it, stories it, and no that and, kind of and, thing. and i think you're touching on why it works for me here um because it is it is sort of illicit music and to highlight a moment where she is feeling power in a situation where she shouldn't have any um to use a song like that does make sense. Um, I, I'm thinking also there's an earlier moment in this episode where um, the character, uh, I, I forget, Janine, I think, is singing a Bob Marley song to the baby. And um, those moments of like, it's like music and art that is now illegal and is now restricted from them. There's a power to it. And so I like that. And um, it was surprising. Don't get me wrong. I was shocked when that song started playing. I was like, really? But in retrospect, it makes sense for this moment. And they do it a little bit more in other episodes. Um, in general, I really like the the soundtrack choices that were made in this show. Um, but I wanted to throw that back at you because historically, you've been someone who has said you you didn't like that. You found it a little bit to be too much like a like a you know a music video. music video so how did you feel yeah, about this one? I, I led the witness with this one like i i like it okay in, in this in this scenario i do enjoy it um like i said i think it can be something that's leaned on as a crutch sometimes and it's just sort of like an easy thing to do to pot, put a popular song in right and not have it be extremely motivated and this is the throwback song though right it's like an 80s song and like yeah it's not yeah. it's not like a modern pop song yeah because then it starts to feel like a music video sometimes but. okay so episode three is called late in flashbacks, the rise of Gilead is detailed through June's eyes. June and her female colleagues were fired, and the government froze women's bank accounts and ruled they could no longer own property. In the present, Serena takes June to see Janine and the baby, and June fears Janine is delusional. Back home, June is interrogated by an I and Aunt Lydia about her knowledge of Auckland. Aunt Lydia physically beats and shocks June with a cattle prod for being disrespectful and quoting from the Beatitudes in the Bible. But before Aunt Lydia can hit June again, Serena intervenes, believing June is pregnant. When June later tells Serena that she is not, Serena angrily locks her in her room. In a flashback, June and Moira attend a protest against the new laws, which is interrupted by automatic gunfire and explosives. In the present, Offglen and the Martha she is in a relationship with are charged with gender treachery. The fertile Offglen is reassigned, but the Martha is hanged. Later, Offglen, referred to by her old name, Emily, awakes in a hospital recovery room to find, to her grief and anger, that she has undergone female genital mutilation surgery, as explained by Aunt Lydia. Jesus, what an episode. Um, yeah, Alexis Bladell as Offglen. Shout out to her. I think she does some incredible yeah. work here. Especially at the end, there was just these, these shots of her face. And this brings up a, a topic I wanted to discuss extreme close-ups on actors' faces and having them show a range of emotions, mostly through the eyes, but also just, you know, little expressions. To me, that's a hallmark of, like, a great performance, but also, like, someone who's shooting the show, the director or whoever, like, knowing what to show to make it work. Um, but I wanted to ask you, do you put that, like, because I always wondered, like, if you if you get that super tight close-up and I have my suspicions, but let me set it up. If you get that super tight close up on someone going through an emotional moment, um, how much of it, I guess it's different because they're not, they're not pretending, right? If someone, so if you do that hyper close up on someone who's acting, if they're not maybe a fantastic actor and they're just kind of an okay actor, does that take an okay performance and elevate it? Or does that highlight an okay performance in a way you want to, you would rather avoid 
Like, what's what's the thinking behind? Like, do you want to do that super tight close up of of a performance? Maybe if you're not sure, it's going to be incredible. My opinion on it yeah. is that it's an extreme moment to go to an extreme close up is like visceral. It's just like the the most intimate you can be. Yeah. And for me, if I don't have faith in an actor, I'm not going to go that tight. Yeah. Because it's gonna, like you said, it's gonna highlight the. It's not going to be believable. Something about it's going to feel false, right? something wider maybe even hiding their face or just showing it physically like that that could be easier to pull off because that is a difficult thing to pull off in a performance like you have to have excellent actors when i think about like some of that stuff some of my favorite performances it really is in the face right when i think about some of the most iconic moments some of my favorite moments in film when it comes to performance it is usually a very close look at someone's face and you can see just just like a stew of emotions that are impossible to even put words to and what we get with off glenn there at the end is that because my god the 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 sort of grief and confusion and just the range of emotions and it sort of cuts briefly between different ones and and it to me it felt like uh we were showing all these different reactions she was having and Man, it was it was incredibly affecting. Um, and th- it comes to cap off an episode that has some of the like just most devastating moments um, of the show, which is full of him. But the uh, the hanging scene was incredible, right? It's it's I think mm-hmm. it might have been kind of a oneer if I'm remembering correctly. Was, yeah. She's in the yeah. back of this this van. She's having this moment with her. Um, I guess lover. I don't know. They were accused of that. Mm-hmm. It seems like they did have a connection and um, they're holding hands and they're both sort of imprisoned. And then she gets pulled out and they just take her over to the noose, lift her up. And yeah, I don't know how they, they must've been able to digitally remove a wire or something, but they literally just with on a crane, raise this woman up in a slow hang. That is like one of the most brutal ways to die because yep. um, and the and then the van takes like drives away as it's happening in the window you can see it in the back yeah window. it's it's so well shot and yep. so brutal and um just yeah and then you follow that up with what happens to off glenn and it's just it's horrifying yeah typically those those um like fake hangings are done with like a vest right. of some kind that they rig up so you're you're not yeah. obviously being hung by your neck. Yeah, no, no. Like and a, I thought I could kind of see that and I assume there's some sort of wire that they probably digitally right. removed or something later. Yeah. Yeah, because I thought I saw that even in like, you can usually kind of tell if you look for it in the way that they're hanging, you can kind of tell that the weight is, is not on the neck, which like the way they have to do it. <laughs> and it doesn't really take anything away no, from it me really most of the time. Yeah. And yeah. This one looked great, by the way. Like I could barely tell. Like it, this one looked incredible and, and it was so affecting it's so honestly like one of the heaviest episodes yeah. it's horrifying what happens to off glenn and, and i don't remember the term gender traitor in the book although it may appear again when we read these books for this show we tend to read them fast um so it might have been in there but um the, the way this was really highlighted and, and honestly just more of off glenn's story which was told to us as like sort of supposition and i heard these things whereas here we're getting we're seeing it play out um, I have really been captivated by off Glenn's story in the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, just these moments are really brought to life and, and just incredibly powerful. And then, yeah, the whole idea of the, of the gender, gender treachery or whatever they call it, gender trading, a gender traitor, whatever the term was, um, it feels like, and uh, of course this would be a thing in this society, right? Like homophobia, 
Um, it was touched on in the book, but like, I like the way that they're bringing that to the forefront because it would be a, in a society like this, it would be, you know, punishable by death, obviously. And you mentioned like uh, fleshing things out for a full season and beyond that uh, for something like this. And like these these side stories that we get with these other characters are, you know, just as affecting. And I think it's interesting to think about what you told me about the other novel that Margaret Atwood was wrote and it's sort of from the perspective of other Marthas and, and yeah. like aunts and things like I don't, that. Yeah, so. I don't, I haven't read it. It's called The Testaments. Um, I'm really curious, but that's what I heard, right? Is that it's, right. it's about some other, uh, other, pe- other women and their perspectives. So, uh, yeah. And it's cool because like the, this show kind of frames it as like, it's not, ne- it is of course June's story, but also at the same time, all of these other characters have really interesting uh, like journeys they're going on. And notably, we don't get any voiceover for off Glenn. And that I it, and that kind of shows me the difference, right? Because her what we're what we're trying to figure out going on in her head is all just from her performance and what she actually says to other people. But when they're pulling her around and she's got her her um, mouth covered and she can't speak, all that acting's done with the eyes, and it's incredible. I, you know, again, another another great performance by uh, by someone I shouldn't have overlooked earlier when I was listing them. Yeah, totally. Uh- the other thing that we get in this episode is Aunt Lydia just beating the shit out of June and then yeah. leading us into Serena's blow up where she throws her on the ground and screams in her face and then she's locked away in her room. Yeah. Do you understand me is what she says. I wrote it down here, yeah. but it's so good. Um, and it's because she says, you yeah, this could get a lot worse for you, which is something that is in the book. Um, yeah. So good. Um, just 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 a powerful. We already talked about that scene, so I don't want to hit it again. But yeah, this this had some just incredible performances in it this one all right so this next one forgive my latin but episode four is called nolite bastarde carborundorum banished to her room june retreats to her closet where she finds a latin phrase scratched discreetly into the wall when rita the martha assigned as the commander's housekeeper finds june lying on the floor june tells her that she fainted so serena sends her to the hospital for a checkup during the examination the physician remarks that the commander is most likely sterile and offers to impregnate june but she declines In flashbacks, Aunt Lydia teaches the handmaids about the ceremony in which a commander endeavors to fertilize a handmaid. Later, June and Moira assault Aunt Elizabeth, and Moira takes her outfit. June and Moira plan to escape to Boston, which which has safe houses. Moira catches the train, but June is detained by a soldier and returned to the Red Center, where her feet are beaten as punishment for attempting to escape. In the present, Commander Waterford has an unsuccessful ceremony night, but later that night they play Scrabble again. She asks him about the Latin phrase, and he tells her it means, don't let the bastards grind you down. She learns that the previous Offred killed herself because life was unbearable. At the end, June is released from confinement to her room. And uh, this is the first episode directed by someone else, you said, right? Yes. I felt it a little bit. Now that in, re- in retrospect, this one felt a little different than what had come before. It's hard to exactly point to the precise reasons why. I'd have to kind of watch it again, but... Um, I remember this one just had a slightly different feel to it, but in the way that shows often do, um, I didn't make much of it, but you know, now that you've mentioned it, it's interesting to think about, but, um, again, this, this, we get a, we get a flashback scene with, um, a nostalgic song playing. I believe it was like a monkey song or something playing at the start of this episode, using music as a link to the time that came before showing like how different life was to how it is now i think it continues to be effective i like how it was done here um we got the doctor scene which i knew was going to be awkward and was um 
there's just a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, one one I found fascinating is how red and white keep recurring in this show and um, in different moments, right? Like I'm thinking, of course, their outfits, but then you also get it in like when she's when she's in uh, Nick's car and sort of trapped in the back, everything is red and white. Like everything is of mm-hmm. these colors. We get a flashback scene, although it might be next episode, I'm not really sure, where she's meeting with Luke um to have their uh they're having a meal in a restaurant and there's children playing outside and they're all wearing red and white and 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 i was like is that a is that foreshadowing like what like but we know is is it a clue about how the world was already changing maybe um and you know there's there's all these moments right like we get someone say um uh, in his light or whatever it is he says, something like that. Whatever you know, like the little phrase gets said to her at one point. She's like, under what his you eye. Just, under his eye. Yeah. She's like, "What yeah. did you just say to me?" Um, oh, that was ex- that part was awesome. I love that that she was like, "What the fuck is this weird culty yeah. situation that's like just befallen yeah, us?" Yeah. You start hearing these little things. There's the way that the guy's behaving in the coffee shop. Um, right. Yeah. Know. I do wonder uh, what. So, like, what is the? I'll just tell you what I think the red means, and it, it has to represent fertility in some way, right? And it has to do with like. Well, it's also blood in the body, right? Serena lost it, and it was the, right before that. The reason she lost it is because she, this whole time she thought that she was pregnant. Turns out she's not pregnant. Yeah. Um. And and the scene before that has June just like sitting there with her underwear with like a blood spot on right. it. And like I think that that's like the the handmaids. I think that that's what they're that's what the red represents yeah. there in some ways. Like I, I red also like typically is like power. Yeah, I mean they're important. I think there's an importance to it. Very, it's very very primary red. It's not a faded red. Right. Very. Eye-catching. And then white would be usually considered to be like purity. Yeah. So there's 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 purity, and the purity has wings, and the wings are often used to block like almost like blinders on a horse um so they can't see so they're literally like blinded by purity um and then yeah their their bodies are red their bodies are being reduced to their biological purpose quote unquote as in this society and um that is tied to uh blood and the womb and you know your monthly cycles and all that stuff i think um so yeah that's that's my read on it and it is interesting to have children wearing that right early on um and it's like it could just be a recurring thing yeah i don't know and then um they might have been girls might have been young girls i'm not sure i don't remember for sure um there's another moment where she's in the hospital talking with a nurse i think and they're talking about the baby and she says something that's one of the phrases that is said a lot by the believers later like uh some yeah i don't i can't remember exactly what it says like by his light or something she says something yeah they say like under his eye may the lord open they say like be pr- something be praise what is it praise be praise be remember. that's what it is praise be she says praise be for something with the baby but she's not she's not a member as we far as we know she's just like a, a nurse or somebody at the hospital but they're talking about the baby and she says praise be so the the sense is that maybe this religion is starting to take hold and they're that, like co-opting like things that exist and everything. well that too but like I, it also could be like this thing's go- spreading and maybe some mm-hmm. people are already starting to adopt the phrasing and and, and yeah, you know true. what i mean like it's getting into yeah. society so uh, we got to talk about the the June and Moira escape because that was totally different, and I wanted to get your take on it because like Moira just escapes on her own in the book, and June like sees this as like um 
as like a beacon of hope. She's like, at least Moira got away. I know, like she yeah. got away. And she she sort of has to speculate about how it went down uh, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And she heard she hears some things, but then she also is kind of speculating. But yeah, I mean, she's right with her the whole time for this one, and then um, ends up getting captured. And she has this moment of like this little like nod she gives her, like you you go ahead without me. It really empowers Offred in a way that she isn't in the book and then um yeah it really ties her to moira as like an aspirational figure like i want to be like her i want to be like my friend who can fight um well and she kept saying in her in her in her monologues she kept saying saying like moira wouldn't put up with this shit yeah. and moira wouldn't do this and moira wouldn't do what that, would moira so. do <laughs> yeah yeah no and you and you're right and um i i liked it i mean again this is a change that is aligned with what clearly they're trying to do with this character for the show and if you really mm-hmm. don't like that change then it's going to rub you the wrong way but i'm okay with it like i see what they're doing i see why they're doing it and i'm interested to see how well they pull it off going forward the other thing that happens near the end of this episode is june sort of like harnessing the power of the fact that the last offer had killed herself to tell waterford like let me out of my room or I'm going to kill myself. It'd be a shame if I killed myself. And he knows what's going on. He clearly knows that he's being manipulated in a way, but she's doing it just, just enough to where like, she's not, he likes the game of it too. Right? Like he is, he's clearly one of those guys (laughs) who's like, he's, he's got all these rules and he's got his wife completely. Um, as far as he knows, like bought into the, to the rules he's helped set up and yet he's bored. And yet he wants someone to be interesting to him. And I think he finds it interesting to have her push the boundaries a little bit. That's the only reason he's like putting up with it, right? So it, it is kind of a, a, I think that's a little different than what we get in the in the book too. So again, there's it's small differences, but it's it's a lot of these scenes are kind of straight out of the book too. So it's, 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 it's a subtle shift. But um, usually to a same end of, of, of making off Glenn a slightly more powerful character, a character who you kind of want to say fuck yeah for a little more. And then I think that's capped off with at the end of the episode, she repeats that Latin phrase and then she says bitches. And that was right. that was one to me that maybe felt like a bit much um, like I get why they did it. And I get you're supposed to be like, fuck, yeah. But as she, she comes down, there's music probably playing again. Yeah, she's coming down the staircase. She's been released. She yeah, she walks out with the handmaidens all together. They're walking as a unit, yeah. and she's kind of remembering the offred before her, yeah. and like what she had and what she had to go through, and then the quote that she's gifted her now yeah. that she can now like live her life with. She's she's seeing herself as a member of a of a sisterhood, right? Uh, she's right. a part of a group, and and that's that's backed up with that flashback where all the handmaidens bring her bits of food after she's had right. her her feet. Uh, tortured yeah um and so yeah it is it's kind of this like fuck yeah you know moment where she's like linking herself with all these women and that is a little different that's that's not the character in the book like the character in the book never quite feels comfortable in that role it feels way more isolated yeah she feels way more isolated disconnected from everybody yeah episode five is called faithful serena suggests to june that she have sex with nick in case commander waterford is sterile Later that day, Serena leads June up to Nick's room and waits by the door while June and Nick have detached sex. Flashbacks to detail June and Luke's first meeting in courtship. During a ceremony night, the commander touches June's thigh, which she later tells him to never do again. She also confronts him about Emily. He admits that while they thought they were building a better world, they knew that better never means better for everyone. June also confronts Nick, who reveals that he is indeed an eye. 
At an open-air market, June questions Emily about the resistance group, which is called Mayday. Emily jumps behind the steering wheel of a Mercedes and drives erratically around the plaza. She hits and kills a guard and is caught and put back into a black van. June returns to Nick's coach house alone and they have passionate sex. Yeah, sure do. Um, Yeah, interesting episode. Um, A couple things stand out to me that I wanted to highlight here. Um, First off, when they're in the study together talking, um, June says, that reminds me of a poem I once read. And she says, you fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye. And I was like, I've read that poem before. I got to look <laughs> it up because I have a suspicion. Looked it up. Sure enough, Margaret Atwood is the author of that poem. So I love that they throw in this Margaret Atwood poem. And I remember I said, like, my, my connection to Atwood was I had read some of her poetry. I think this is one I had read. That is the entire poem. It's called You Fit Into Me. It's good. It's, I like it. It's That's very awesome. Cool. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah um, shorter than a tweet. <laughs> um but that's the kind of stuff that I knew her for. I hadn't read Handmaid's Tale on many of her other novels. But um, yeah, I just like that little shout out, right? It's a poem I once heard and, and you know, you quote the author of the of the book that you're adapting. Yeah, that's fun. Very cool. Um, you mentioned earlier how like some of these episodes between the flashback and the present and everything going on, there's like a theme. And this episode, I think its theme is, is about sex and like sexuality and love. Right. They have this discussion about love versus procreation. And I think a lot of what we're seeing here is all about that. Uh, The commander and her have a disagreement and he says, what is more important than having children? Like what, what is there to life more important than that? And she says, what about love? And he's like, love is, uh, and love is an illusion. Love is, isn't real. And then he also says, uh, any if any love story over a long enough time becomes a tragedy something like that right um, yep and uh which is a it, it's an interesting line it's a good line um i mean it, it is technically correct technically but true. some people but it, you know some people feel that like the end isn't necessarily the tragedy you know the, the life that they've lived well right right but the the question is one of perspective and it's one that i find myself trying to realign in my own in my own self and it's the sense of um people people call it like mindfulness and being present um and just in a, in a larger scope like enjoying the moment and not letting yourself get caught up in what will come down the line um it's not mm-hmm. to say that you can't think about these things but like does the fact that eventually someone is going to die and end in tragedy, does that somehow negate a happy life with a happy marriage? No, it doesn't, right? Like, that that fact doesn't change anything. And, like, doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy happiness bec- to avoid that future outcome. And that idea that you should is at the heart of the thinking of this society, right? It's like, it's all about the afterlife and some eternal salvation. It's about um, biological imperative that they see. They see it as a holy imperative to procreate. That's in the Bible. We got to make children. There's nothing about Mm -hmm. love and nothing about happiness. That's not important to them. And uh, to Offglen, she's like, no, that's what is important. And genuine connection with people is more important than anything. And to me, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, we're seeing these flashbacks to her genuine love with Luke and their, their, um, 
meeting up and having sex in the hotel. And then again, you get that linked up with her night of passion with Nick, which is a stark contrast to the sort of dispassionate um, meeting she has while <laughs> Serena Joy stares on um, or stands there over them or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think this episode's all about that. Yeah, and the way that like the society is framed sex specifically too. The way that like now sex doesn't mean anything to anyone. They have that situation where Serena like tries to like pleasure the commander, yeah. and he like turns her away. There's no love there anymore. There's no. There's no actual like connection. The connection that he's looking for with June too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to get your read on that. What What do you think's happening there? I think the society has bent him to the point yeah. that he doesn't see her as like a sexual being anymore. His wife, he, he doesn't feel that connection yeah. anymore. It could be also that he feels like for her, he can't bend the rules because she yeah. is such a bought in, complicit figure that mm -hmm. he feels like he has to perform the role of the commander and she has to perform the role of wife. And in this society, apparently they're not allowed to do this. Uh, and uh, in a way that with the handmaid, it's different, right? Like she is breaking the rules. She's, he knows that she's sort of a, you know, subjugated. And so he can break the rules with her in a way that he can't with his wife. Um, it's right. a really fucked up situation. It, sh it does show sort of the lovelessness of their relationship. Yeah. Well, and then we get to the what you're talking about before with Serena standing over Nick and June, where clearly like they kind of have had a connection and like they both felt that, but couldn't be genuine with someone like that with with the society. You kind of get the sense Serena felt it a little bit too, right? She picked up on it a little bit. It seemed like. Yeah. And 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 that's another moment where I didn't know if I should feel bad for her because she, clearly she doesn't have that in her life. Yeah. Um, and I think she recognizes that to some extent. Um, there was a moment that maybe wasn't super subtle, but I think it is clever. And maybe it's just because I analyze this stuff too much. But um, <laughs> when Offred comes back um, from the market and what happens with Off Glen, which we'll talk about. But like she comes back and, and um, Serena Joy asks her like how it went. And she walks over to her and Serena sits down on a chair in front of this like painting with flowers she's been making. And Alfred comes and stands over her and talks to her in a way we haven't seen her talk to her. And it seems like she's she's sort of asserted some power here. She knows that Serena has broken the rules and that knowledge that she's broken the wolves rules at least gives her some measure of power in this dynamic of like she could take them both down. She wouldn't not go down, but she could take them both down if she wanted to. And she knows that. Right. Um, right. So for the first time, I think for the character, she is in a position of power over Serena Joy. And I think that is shown by having Serena sit because she's very tall. Uh, Yvonne uh, yeah. Strahovski is appears to be much taller than Elizabeth Moss. So they have her sit down, I think, to make her physically smaller on screen. No, definitely. I think that was definitely intentional. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the scene, too. We got to talk about where Emily jumps behind the yeah. wheel. And like, did you think she was getting away? I mean, no. <laughs> no, no, I did not think she was getting away. I didn't think she was. I didn't know she was going to do a circle on like run over a dude's head. Um, that was crazy. Which exploded right? was... in a way that is maybe a little bit, a little bit much for this show, but it was fine. Um, and uh, I, it was another in cool moment of like, fuck yeah. And I clearly inspires Offred, right? But it, it yeah. is, it's a, I don't know, a tragic turn for this character who 
earlier we saw sitting and throwing the ball for this dog. And I wrote down something like, I don't know anyone has ever looked this sad while throwing a ball for a dog. That is really hard yeah. to do, but she does it. <laughs> um, and then um, her, the wife, uh, apparently her of Kevin or something, is like her new house, who comes out to talk to her, offers to like say that she's ill and, and avoid the ceremony. So like, I was like, wow, she's in a situation where the wife actually seems to understand just how horrific um, her life is right now and and probably knows what she's been through with this genital mutilation and stuff, which, again, another thing that has real world, you know, correlation. This thing does really happen. That was one of the things that they pointed to with the the producers and everybody really talked about if it was going too far. And they felt that since it is something that goes yeah. on and it, like the awareness should be there and it's it's done in many in many countries yeah. have done it historically, too. Yeah. Um, Horrifying. It's super fucked yeah, yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, it needs to be talked about. Right. And and, or, and it's being talked about here. But um, potentially the first time it's ever been shown on television too, yeah, like something maybe. like that to be brought to the popular consciousness in that right. way. And, and it's something this this sort of prime. Right. Like <laughs> a lot of people are watching. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it's it. A great moment. I was, I guess I was surprised she wasn't killed immediately. She was thrown in a van and driven away, which makes me think we're probably going to see her again. That's my suspicion. Um, I kind of hope we do because I really like her as this sort of side character. I'm really invested in her story. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm interested to see if we continue to get more off Glenn than we, than we ever got in the book. Yeah. Any other quick theories while we wrap up here? So the Nick stuff is interesting, right? Like he gets, he gives confirmation that he is an eye here but clearly he has mixed loyalties um and he's willing to again break the rules um because he seems to genuinely care about offred um i remember you mentioning something about this last week so you must have been having a little bit of show knowledge because i don't that's not in the book really like in the book he's mysterious and at the end he remains somewhat mysterious but there's an implication that he is actually working for mayday or has some sort of connection to the resistance but it's not confirmed um in the show, um, he's he's a very interesting character because it seems like he is full blown. He's an eye, but she is sort of converting him through her influence, and it again puts her in a position of power. And then, yeah, these the sex scene is clearly an assertion from her that this is important to me in life, like ex- like experiencing the moment, finding love, or even just like passion and living in the moment and enjoying yourself while you're alive is important enough for me to take this risk. And um, it kind of shows the complete polar opposite from everything we've seen so far, where we've seen all this dispassionate sex that has been reduced to a function. And you, you can, you know, contrast that with what we see here and it's night and day. Okay, so I really enjoyed revisiting the first five episodes of this show. I cannot wait to jump in. I'm probably going to watch some more tonight just to <laughs> jump back in and uh, yeah. finish out the show. We're going to be covering six through ten yeah. next week, so be sure to stick around and, and come back for that. We will also, at the end of the episode next week, give our judgment on what is the better version of this story. Was it season one of the show or was it the original book by margaret atwood so pay attention for that one hopefully you join us again next week if you liked this coverage please let us know in the form of a rating and review uh we love to see them just got a new one recently um i'm gonna post it to instagram i like to do that so um leave us a rating and review and uh yeah we'll share it on social media it would be awesome 
And to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And uh, for our 200th episode, if you're so inclined and you wanted to sort of let us know uh, what your experience has been with Ink to Film by telling us uh, how your life has changed since we started and um, favorite moments or favorite episodes, you can write into Ink to Film at gmail.com. And we're going to, we're planning on reading some of those on our 200th episode. So look forward to that. Absolutely. And if you'd like to support this podcast in another way, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. We have a bunch of bonus content on there, including an episode we recently did on the never ending story too. So if that sounds interesting to you, check it out. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for this week. Uh, the men with their big machine guns are giving me wrap it up looks. I think it's time to, to move on and uh, we'll be back for episodes six through 10 where we, uh, we wrap this thing up. What an interesting project this is. What a what a what a powerful piece of work all around, honestly. So, I'm excited for this one and we'll be back and until next time, keep adapting.